This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Art and business collide in this tale of a hapless artist and a very shrewd, if not entirely scrupulous, marketing executive. Davis Javits, a struggling creator of sculptures made entirely from pieces he's foraged from dumpsters, is just barely getting by when he receives a mind-boggling offer that he can neither believe nor refuse. Will he or won't he accept it? Art gets the business in a story that begs the question, what makes a piece of art worth anything? Jeff Fleischer is a Chicago-based author, journalist, and editor. His fiction has appeared in more than 60 publications. He's the author of nonfiction books, including Votes of Confidence, A Young Person's Guide to American Elections, The Latest Craze, A Short History of Mass Hysterias, and A Hot Mess, How the Climate Crisis is Changing Our World. This is a work of fiction. Found Art, Lost Art. Written by Jeff Fleischer. Read by A.S. Freeman. How much did you say again? Davis Javits had heard the amount perfectly clearly. He didn't doubt his hearing. It was his imagination that he mistrusted. The heavy-set man seated across from him grinned, unconsciously straightening the lapels on his expensive suit. He casually leaned back in his chair about as far as he could without tipping over. $1,250,000. He'd said it as $1.25 million the previous time, but took the question as a lack of understanding. When the second time he said it, he was met with only a quiet stare. The suit leaned his girth forward, opened his metallic briefcase, and removed a strapped-together stack of bearer bonds that totaled the quoted amount. He handed the bonds to Davis, who examined them in silence for so long that the suit half expected him to bite one to verify its validity, like a cartoon version of a 19th century merchant. Satisfied? the suit asked, leaning back again. Davis Javits drew a breath and looked around his gallery. The man in the suit was the only thing inside the former fieldhouse that carried even a coincidental smell of success. That uninspiring reality started with Davis himself with his thrift store clothes, hand-me-down shoes, and generally scraggly appearance. He liked to think that his beard, a thick but untrimmed mess that didn't quite connect with his sideburns, leaving an uncomfortable gap on each side, gave him a vaguely hipster look. He also thought it was cool how his hair, which didn't grow as long as he would like and was thinning in the front and on the top of his dome, bunched up in the back, and always had a natural bedhead look. 
In reality, he looked more like a newly homeless man, or a college student who'd recently stopped caring about his appearance, though his hygiene suggested better than either of those scenarios. Not quite 30 years old, but not far from it either, Davis Javits didn't lack a work ethic. His art had been a lifelong pursuit, a hobby he decided to make a career when he found he lacked the qualifications for any other appealing option. He'd gotten in on the found object art trend long before it became overexposed, and continued to toil away at it despite a complete lack of financial reward. When he failed to find success, acclaim, or even acknowledgement in the medium, he refused to alter his basic style but doubled down on quantity. He decided he simply wasn't coming up with enough pieces and began to work at an almost superhuman pace, producing a new work of art nearly every day. He'd discovered his affinity for found object art back in elementary school, when he would spend almost every recess alone, collecting sticks and rocks from the fields and fashioning them into eccentric trinkets he tried to peddle at class fundraisers or through door-to-door sales to townspeople, many too concerned about looking cheap in front of their neighbors to refuse. Until the suit arrived, those sales for a few dollars each represented the most lucrative stretch in the art career of Davis Javits. His gallery was an abandoned school gymnasium he'd rented back when his finances were in better shape. When he took a few thousand dollars of inheritance money his great-uncle had expected him to spend toward a college education, and instead invested it to fund his theoretical career. The building had seen better days, with several contradictory coats of paint visible through cracks in the wood and more than a little rust showing on the hinges. The gallery had started out as a barn. Still, like many such buildings in eastern Indiana, it had been repurposed several times. It endured stints as a speakeasy, a munitions storage facility, a town hall, and ultimately as a basketball court for several area high schools before each built their own. When he learned the building's history, Davis Javits felt it fit his own exceptionally well. Before the small inheritance, he'd scraped by financially as a bartender at an often empty dive, a checkout clerk at a gas station, and a greenskeeper at a third-rate golf course. The landlord didn't really use the fieldhouse anymore and gave him a good deal. When the building's rightful owner died, Davis and his monthly rent somehow got lost in the paperwork, and he saved even more money when he decided to live there, too. For three years, he slept on a mattress in the old visitor's locker room, using the showers there and storing his few possessions in the vacant lockers. That way, he could work to the point of exhaustion any time he wanted then collapse for as long as he needed to recharge. As he looked around his makeshift gallery, contemplating the magnitude of the suit's offer, Davis Javits started to consider how much money his existing collection would bring in if a single piece was suddenly worth more than a million dollars. Every wall in the fieldhouse was lined with art. Every corner held stack upon stack of completed pieces. Every locker in the abandoned home locker room overflowed with supplies, with incomplete scraps of incomplete ideas. A good percentage of the building's square footage was filled with raw materials yet to be put to use, or more accurately, in need of repurposing. The ability to stock up with virtually no overhead was one of the advantages of practicing found object art, so the parts of the building not visible to the public looked like a cross between a city dump and the aftermath of a small hurricane. Finally. Davis thought. It had all amounted to something. Something far more financially viable than he'd ever imagined. Thank you, he told the fat man, extending his hand. It's a pleasure to do business with you. 
Davis didn't know this, but the suit had first noticed him about two weeks before he sat there with his briefcase full of bearer bonds. He'd seen the thin man scrounging around an oversized dumpster in the back of his marketing firm's office. The firm shared the dumpster and the alley where it sat with both a construction supply company and a hardware manufacturer in the same complex. Davis used to stop by that alley pretty regularly because experience had taught him that the construction folks would dump usable material at least a few times a week. When the suit first noticed him through an office window, he was throwing an assortment of found items into a shopping cart. It was a large hall, about a dozen paint cans, part of a former ladder, a broken table, partial sheets of drywall, a bent metal frame, some pieces of two-by-four. The suit took an immediate interest in what he assumed was a homeless man and rushed downstairs to try to intercept him for a brief talk before he left. Unfortunately, the elevator was a little too slow, and the building's security guard made him sign for a package that had just been delivered. So Davis Javits was long gone by the time the suit got to the alley. With his usual rapid work pace, Davis took only about five days to repurpose the fruits of that day's labor into more than a dozen works of art. He'd converted the paint cans and broken chair into an uneven mobile, something of a back-alley homage to Alexander Calder. He'd painted each sheet of drywall in a different, bold color, making careful use of his brushstrokes to subtly suggest patterns too intricate to fully absorb on first viewing, but which would reveal themselves to any future patron who paid close attention to them. Of all the works he created, however, he considered his finest the massive angled cross he'd made from the remains of the former ladder. By tilting the parts of the cross at just enough of an angle, he hoped to convey the diminishing role of faith in the modern world. He held the wooden boards together with a full roll of packaging tape, reinforcing the angles with a few judicious nails he felt matched the work's theme. To make it less austere, he inlaid it with rocks he'd found in a paper bag left in a drawer of the broken table, spacing them without a discernible pattern so they'd reflect the messiness of modern life. Davis Javits often feigned modesty, trying not to let on to fellow struggling artists how much he actually considered himself an unappreciated genius. Even with enough self-awareness to know his tendency to like his own work too much, he thought the cross was genuinely brilliant, one of the best pieces he'd made to date. He said as much to the fat man in the pinstriped suit just a few days before the offer. I quite agree, the man had said. This is one of the finest pieces I've seen in its genre. The suit had shown up unexpectedly on a Wednesday, pulling his sleek town car up the patchy asphalt driveway on a particularly rainy afternoon. Davis had years earlier fashioned a sign advertising the gallery out of a broken-down calliope he'd procured at the state fair, framing the sign's rectangular shape with chasing lights. Placing it on the roadside in front of the fieldhouse had enticed an occasional visitor to stop by and briefly browse. Visitors usually treated his gallery the way they'd treat any other roadside attraction, as another place to stretch their legs and feel like they'd seen a sight before continuing on to their destination. The senior vice president of corporate and multi-platform marketing was a different case. Davis had focused on his title as soon as he saw the obviously expensive business card the man handed him when he walked in. Something in his body language signaled to Davis that he was ready to buy. Perhaps it was the way the suit casually strolled around the gallery that rainy afternoon, carefully inspecting the works on the walls as well as the freestanding pieces. At first, Davis had to admit to himself, he'd assumed the man was simply passing the time to avoid going back out in the downpour. 
The visitor paused at every piece, looking at each intently from multiple angles in the manner of a discerning collector. After a while, a faint terror struck Davis Javits. This man was actually looking to buy something from him. And for all his experience and all his work, Davis had absolutely no idea what to charge. The man had to make the first offer. That much was clear to Davis. Otherwise, the marketing executive, who clearly had far more experience with this kind of thing, was going to lowball him and only negotiate up to what he was willing to pay in the first place. Davis felt impotent about guessing a price that the other man would accept but would also be more than he wanted to pay. Anything the man would offer would benefit him. The artist was terrified of setting a price so high the man would just walk away, but only slightly less terrified of negotiating himself out of a potential windfall. It felt mentally paralyzing. Davis also realized that this sale could be his entrance, while not to fame exactly, to the kind of respect and recognition among the Kanyashenti that he'd long sought. Like all the other local artists he knew, Davis Javits worked every day with one eye on a future break. The one sale, exhibition, review, or mention to the right person that could change his years of artistic expression from an all-consuming hobby into something resembling an actual career. If a senior-level multi-platform marketing executive liked his work, who better to spread the word and promote him? The suit would be working out of self-interest, after all. If Davis Javits became the next big thing, or worthy of any attention, whatever price his first real sale brought would become a bargain in retrospect. And the suit surely knew that. Davis wouldn't have to exploit the man's connections, because he'd be wise to exploit them himself. Let me show you some of my new collection, Davis had said hoping to give the man a hard sell without being too pushy. He led the visitor from the far wall, where he had been checking out a series of faux tribal masks fashioned from corrugated metal, and brought him to the area housing his most recently repurposed pieces. Each of these is designed to represent a different perspective on the drudgery of our modern... Davis realized the other man was too engrossed in the work itself to listen to his improvised tales of inspiration. The suit seemed to like the Calder homage, as he watched each paint can travel its little ovular orbit. He peered intently at each of the color studies on drywall, taking the most interest in the dark green one, which even Davis felt provided the best variety of textures. As soon as he brought out the wooden cross, though, Davis knew he had a sail. The man's eyes widened, and he examined the cross from every angle as Davis explained its postmodern take on theological relevance. After the man had inspected it thoroughly and seemed satisfied, they exchanged their mutual assessment that this was an outstanding work. The suit then asked Davis a question the young artist had never heard in that context before. How much? Davis knew he should have had an answer ready, as nearly half an hour had gone by since he'd realized this man might actually buy something. He knew he had to aim high but be willing to negotiate down. He had to let this man know his work was valuable if he was going to let the suit build his reputation and enrich them both in the process. Several amounts raced through Davis Javits's head, but none came readily to his mouth. What do you think is fair? Was all he found himself capable of saying while he silently chastised himself. Surely he'd opened himself up to the lowball offer he had feared and provided no recourse for a productive counteroffer. However, what the man said next surprised him. Tell you what. Let me think about it and do a little research. I'll make you an offer tomorrow. I promise you it'll be fair. 
The would-be customer took the artist's blank expression as agreement. Just don't sell that piece to anyone else without giving me a chance to match. The marketing executive shook his hand with the firm grip of someone used to taking meetings and left the gallery. Davis spent the evening in the grip of disappointment, wondering how he'd allowed a potential career-making sale to slip through his paint-caked fingers and drive off in a town car worth more than everything he owned. True to his word, though, the heavyset man came back the next day. Just in case the suit did show up, Davis spent the morning tidying the room. He swept years' worth of sawdust, cobwebs, and loose nails and screws into a corner behind a series of hyperbolic Soviet-style propaganda posters he'd painted during a younger, more active time. He dressed up as best he could with his limited wardrobe, buttoning up a dress shirt he usually wore open over a t-shirt and slicking his hair back with a part on one side. To give the impression of a business setting, he set up a desk and a pair of office-style chairs, procured on dumpster runs and not yet repurposed, in the middle of the gallery. Davis was too nervous to do any real work that day. He perused his workshop like a visitor until he heard the expected vehicle pull up next to the old barn. After propping the door open, he sat at the desk in the hope of looking official. The suit entered the room, carrying the briefcase. He plopped down on the empty chair. After brief small talk, the fat man leaned back and said, So, let's talk business. I've brought what I consider a more than a fair offer for you, and I'm ready to make the buy today. Davis steeled himself with his best neutral expression, prepared to reject the presumably lowball first offer. Then the man said, 1.25 million. Now it was his turn to ask, How much? $1,250,000, the man said, smiling at the artist's obvious shock. He removed the bonds from his briefcase and handed them to Davis. That's the offer. Take it or leave it. Yes, um, definitely. That sounds... Well, that sounds amazing, Davis said after a long silence as he looked at the pile of bonds in his hand. Even in denominations of $10,000, the bonds made a heavy block, with a palpable sense of how much money they were worth. Not only had Davis never seen that kind of money, after all, most people never had, but he'd never expected to even know someone who'd seen so much. All he had to do now was cash the bonds in, and he'd be the wealthiest person he'd ever known. Well, more like the second wealthiest, after the man handing the money to him. Thank you so much. Davis said, instantly forgetting any pretense of trying to bid up the offer. I hope you enjoy the piece. You've made an excellent choice. Just so we're clear, my offer is for everything you have here, including the building, the marketing executive said, casting his hand in a loop to indicate the entire gallery. You didn't really think I was going to give you that much money just for one piece. That's more money than you'll ever need. This gave Davis pause. The suit was right that the bonds he now held were more than ample for the rest of his life. It was an incredible amount of money to a man used to subsisting on fast food and cold-cut sandwiches. But it would also mean giving up more than 500 works of art. Admittedly, many of them were subpar efforts, and the fieldhouse had gotten uncomfortably cramped from the sheer quantity of work. Still, it was a lot to walk away from. But it was also a lot of money. Are you sure you don't want to just pick all the pieces you want? Davis asked. 
Otherwise, what am I going to sell? What if one of the pieces I sell you generates demand? This was a phrase he'd once heard a more business-oriented artist use, and which he thought sounded appropriate. Oh, you can't sell any more art. This is it. The pieces only become valuable if you're dead. A chill struck Davis. He stared at the marketing executive's right hand and noticed that it was in his suit pocket. Realizing where the artist's eyes were focused, the heavyset man laughed and withdrew his hand. No, no, nothing like that. I just meant the work has to be the product of an artist everyone thinks is dead if it's going to justify the money I'm spending on it. Think of it as an elaborate marketing strategy. What am I supposed to do? People will see me around. Plus, I have to get a new place to live if you want this one. Whatever I rent or buy will be in my name. Davis had never told a relative stranger that he lived in his workspace, but figured there was no reason to be coy about it now. You just leave the country, change your name, and start a whole new life. This is no way to go on, after all. You just start over, build a better life for yourself. Once we wait enough time, I present your art to the public as the work of a great lost genius. If it works, I can make you one of the most famous found object artists of the century. But it only works if I come up with the right backstory. Ideally, something with a tragic death, something noble. Maybe you saved someone from drowning or a fire, the kind of heroic story people will remember. I promise I'll think of something with the right impact. I'm pretty good at this sort of thing. Davis protested briefly. He explained that he didn't have a passport, had never traveled abroad, and didn't know how to speak any foreign languages other than a bit of conversational Spanish he'd picked up in high school. The suit countered not unreasonably that more than a million dollars would solve all of those problems easily. The more Davis Javits thought about it, the better the proposed arrangement seemed. Really, nothing was keeping him there. His parents, who had lived in Arkansas, were long dead. He had a grandmother still alive somewhere in Oregon or Washington, but they'd lost touch years ago. He'd never had a real romantic relationship, just a series of inebriated hookups with women he would never see again. His few friends were really just acquaintances, other struggling artists who met at bars from time to time to punish their livers and vent their spleens about the success of hacks younger than all of them. He knew most of them would regard him as just such a hack now that he'd made an unexpected and lucrative sale. Besides, he'd always heard that Argentina was nice this or any time of year. He shook the man's hand, promised to move to Buenos Aires in the next few weeks, and agreed to send a blank, telltale postcard to the marketing executive as soon as he was set up abroad. Davis wisely insisted that he cash the bonds before turning over the keys to the fieldhouse, but the money proved genuine. Once enough time had passed, the suit assured him his work would be presented to the world, and his genius would finally be known. Now a financial success, he would soon also become a critical one. Jeremiah David, as the artist chose to rechristen himself once safely moved into a beautiful Argentine villa with a panoramic view of the South Atlantic, did, in fact, have enough money to last the rest of his life. Between the favorable exchange rate in his new homeland and familiarity with inexpensive living honed by years of experience as a struggling artist, he never had to work another day. Sure, art was still part of his life, something he dabbled in from time to time. But without the same driving hunger, it became just a hobby to his mind, as it had always been to his pocketbook. After working nearly every day of his adult life, he took a few months off immediately after his move to handle necessary tasks like finding a home, getting his accounts set up, 
buying an all-terrain vehicle and teaching himself the language. In the process, he discovered that he didn't miss his old schedule all that much and spent another few weeks touring the country, traveling around the Pompas, and checking out the attractions of several cities. When he decided to try his hand at art again, it was more out of boredom and a fear of his skill atrophying than any real need to work. Strangely, the lack of ambition actually made his art better. It was nothing that would ever hang in a modern gallery or fetch an inflated price at auction, and certainly nothing that would have impressed his found art colleagues back in the States. But with the exception of one marketing executive and himself, nothing he created had impressed anyone that much in the first place. His work in Argentina was less pretentious, more practical, and accessible, applying his limited talent to pieces that had everyday uses. Jeremiah David soon wound up making mobiles for the newborns in his new neighborhood on the outskirts of Buenos Aires, applying his old technique but with the recognizable shapes of animals and toys instead of repurposed rusty cans. New friends often received gifts of sturdy but unusually shaped furniture from the American who lived in the villa and spent many a Sunday afternoon leading workshops on carpentry or painting for local teenagers. Because of his modest lifestyle and lax approach to his dress and presentation, few of the people he met understood just how wealthy he'd become. His only apparent vice was the internet alerts. Just hours before he left America, Davis Javits sat in an airport lounge with the laptop purchased with his newfound wealth, making sure every search engine would let him know whenever the name Davis Javits made news. With his disappearance preventing meaningful contact with anyone stateside, it would be the best way to find out when he became the posthumous star of the found object universe. In the first few years of his new life, he checked the alerts obsessively, searching for his old moniker whenever he went online. Then, less so as time went along. Within three years, the alerts had been forgotten, though they stayed in place as an afterthought. There was simply never any news to report, and Jeremiah David, or as he eventually learned to pronounce it, Jeremiah David, stopped actively seeking such information. Because the suit had pegged Davis Javits as a street person the first time he'd seen him rummaging around the dumpster, he thought it would be easy to locate him again. While he never interacted with the homeless on his way to and from work, he recognized that most of them were consistent faces, and he kept an eye out for the thin, bearded young man. Failing to find his target and feeling desperate, he started inconspicuously checking other alleys and dumpsters for signs of him. When he came across Davis at another dump site a few days later, he followed him home. Upon discovering that the forager was an artist looking for material, the suit began to form ideas about hiding his real objective, and his sharp marketing instincts generated a perfect solution. He had correctly assumed that the untrained eye of Davis Javits wouldn't recognize the $80 million worth of uncut jewels the suit had hidden in a paper bag, tucked inside an inconspicuous old table in the building's storage room. When he realized the maintenance crew had unexpectedly removed the table that morning, he wrongly assumed it would be left alone in the dumpster for a few hours on a non-pickup day. He checked the window constantly to be sure, planning to retrieve it the instant that no one was watching. Once in the fieldhouse, the relieved marketing executive instantly spotted the gems on the enormous wooden cross. He began to devise an offer that would guarantee both the return of his merchandise and the artist's silence. He knew he had to offer an overwhelming amount of money, 
an amount he could spare, but that would also be enough to buy off the artist instantly and for good. And he knew the old canard about an artist's fame after death would be an equally effective motivator. He had used the posthumous success line before in his dealings with creative types and always wondered why they fell for it. He knew that Van Gogh had died unknown and penniless and had earned recognition only after death. He figured that was where the trope came from. But while he was no expert, he also knew enough about art to know that the Van Gogh story was a huge exception, no matter how often it was noted. He knew Goya had been the court painter of Spanish royals, that Michelangelo's patrons showered him in riches, and that Degas was the son of a wealthy banker. All he could figure was that it made a handy crutch for the unsuccessful, a built-in excuse for their failures that doubled as a reason to keep going. It didn't matter that it was untrue. After all, he reasoned, lemmings didn't really commit suicide and ostriches didn't hide their heads in the sand. Not only did his deal with Davis Javits allow the suit to reclaim the reward of one less-than-legitimate side project, it also laundered the dubious income he acquired through another business. Even before he confirmed that Davis had cashed in the bonds and left the country, the fat man had meticulously removed each jewel from the cross with one of the artist's leftover screwdrivers, careful not to scrape them in the process. The suit cleverly stayed in his job and kept his wealth well hidden for a few years to avoid any suspicion. He eventually moved into a penthouse suite in New York City. He took one of the paint can mobiles with him, because he legitimately admired it on his first visit to the fieldhouse and because it served as a constant reminder of his greatest marketing triumph. Most of Davis Javits's old art stayed in the fieldhouse where he'd worked for so long, with the obvious exception of the diamond-encrusted cross. The suit had left the sign advertising the gallery out front, though the chasing lights from the old calliope eventually stopped working. Even with the gallery essentially abandoned and the door left wide open, fewer and fewer visitors bothered to see what the sign was advertising. Though the occasional squatter would use the locker room to avoid the worst of the winter weather, and teenagers sometimes stole leftover art supplies or tagged the side of the old barn with spray paint. After sitting vacant for a few years, the local government used eminent domain to claim the barn and the land it sat on as part of an incorporation plan, giving the former marketing executive a generous tax break in the process. After a few more years of inactivity, the newly formed city demolished the old fieldhouse to build a state-of-the-art football field for the nearby high school. In the days before the demolition, work crews picked through what was left of Davis Javits's old gallery, perusing his life's work and checking to see if there was anything of value worth saving. Some of the artwork wound up repurposed, broken down into pieces to serve as building materials, scrap metal, or firewood. But most of it wound up right back in dumpsters, where it originally came from. This story is copyright 2014 by Jeff Fleischer. This recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. 
story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.